0: as I mentioned last week, uh, we're going to start looking at the book of Esther. Uh, Actually, not this week. We're actually going to look at the history instead of the book of Esther. But as you read the Old Testament, uh, so many people as they read it, they just read the book devoid of the context or the history there. And uh, you miss so much when you do that. And so that's why I want us to set up the history here. And as you, uh, I just encourage you, there's so much you can find online on the context of a book the history and so on so as you go through books of the bible uh, study it from that point from the historical setting and so as we look at the story of esther around 1400 bc a small uh, group of tribesmen uh, emerged out of the grass plains of the black sea or actually further east and they made a, their way slowly down towards the persian gulf and they were the parsu our As we know them today, the Persians. Uh, And so, I'm going to just use. So, they came from uh, up in this area, in those grass plains. And a lot of maps will show actually they settled down around the Persian Gulf. But uh, you have three tribes that uh, were related. Uh, You have the Medes, which settled in this area here, Uh, the Parthians or the Scythians settled in between there and the Persians came down around here. And uh, so they were related. All came down similar time out of those grasslands. And so the Persians, when they first migrated down, there were only a few hundred people. But in time, they would conquer uh, much of the known world, parts of Greece, Egypt, all of Asia Minor, uh, minor, the Assyrian Empire, um, much of southern Russia, Afghanistan, and uh, even northern India was to fall under their sway. We know very little of their early history. They had no written language, kept no records. We know what we do know was written by other nations who interacted with them. (coughs) They lived in wooden huts, uh, living simply, scorning the luxuries of the nations around them. Uh, They kept flocks, they cultivated the ground, and they raided. They were fierce warriors. They were proud of their independence. And so, as they moved down to the Gulf of Persia there, they made raids as they went. The opportunity came in 596 BC, so a long time later. Uh, the kingdom of Elam uh, was destroyed by the Assyrians, and uh, Susa was their capital. And so, Susa was right in about here, or sorry, in here, uh, in the kingdom of Elam. At that time, uh, the kingdom of Elam was powerful, but uh, the Syrians were rising in power and they managed to conquer them. And uh, they came in, they plundered, they destroyed the land, spread terror, and uh, then they went back home, uh, taking what they could of the wealth. Ezekiel 32:24 talks about that. He says, uh, Elam is there with all her hordes around her grave. All of them are slain, fallen by the sword. All who had spread terror in the land of the living went down uncircumcised to the earth below. They bear their shame with those who go down to the pit. And so now the kingdom of Elam is destroyed. Many of the people still there. But what the Assyrians, as the Assyrians withdrew from the kingdom of Elam, leaving devastation behind them, the Persians now saw their chance. They have been wandering out in this kind of wasteland just surviving, eking out a living. And as the Assyrians left the, under the Persians under the king Achaemenes, uh, they swept in with their hard-hitting cavalry, and it was an easy victory for them. Uh, the Elamites had no chance to regroup, no chance to rebuild, after the Assyrians had devastated them. And so the Persians just went in and virtually just wiped them out. And so the Persians now had their own land, and they took over that whole area that was the kingdom of Elam. The son of Achaemenes was Cyrus, and it gets confusing when you study the history because they tended to keep using the same names, so you'll see Cyrus in their history repeated over and over. (laughs) The son of Cyrus was Cambyses, who married a median princess, and so we need to take a little side trip here. While these things are happening, Israel's on her way down. So this is all happening over hundreds of years. And she's going down. Israel, under the reign of Solomon, had divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom, consisting of ten tribes, quickly left God and went to worshiping idols, practicing fertility religions. And they reached the point where God said, I'm going to punish them. And it was the Assyrians who destroyed the Elam kingdom who also went down into Israel, the northern ten tribes, and uh, conquered them. The Syrians were ruthless, uh, making fast raids, killing, raping. Uh, they were known for ripping pregnant women open, uh, known for making a sport of bashing in the heads of babies. And the people they didn't kill, they deported out into other lands. Now, the southern tribe of Israel, uh, Judah, was not captured by the Syrians, but they too were in spiritual decline. They just had not yet reached the point where God said, I'm going to bring in a nation to dis- discipline you. But he was already through his prophets warning them, and the warnings were explicit. The Babylonians had been selected by God uh, to come in and destroy uh, Judah if they didn't repent. It was prophesied that the Babylonians uh, would carry them away into captivity, and for 70 years they would live in captivity. But at the end of 70 years, a Persian king named Cyrus would be raised up to take them back to the land. This was all prophesied about 150 years before it even happened. Now they could understand this, that Babylon maybe could be the nation that would punish them. Because Babylon, when it was prophesied, was on her way up. It was becoming a world superpower. It would be like a prophecy that God was angry with Canada and he was going to send the U.S. in to punish Canada and conquer Canada and deport us off to the U.S. Now that we could could understand because if God sent the U.S. in against Canada, we wouldn't have much hope. But then to be told that a little country like Belize is going to become the next world superpower... And they were going to conquer the U.S. And they were going to say, hey, Canada, you get to go home and have your land again. We would look at that and say, well, there's no way that a little country like Belize could become the next superpower. And then even to name the prime minister of Belize who does this. 150 years before he's even born. You see, when that prophecy was made, the Persians were still a little tribal group sitting in the desert, raiding, raising sheep. But it wasn't hard for God, though. So he raised up the Assyrians to take Israel down and to punish her, and yet at the same time, he was bringing a small, unimportant tribal group out of the north, preparing them to become a powerful nation who would conquer the known world and restore Israel, all within his control. So let's move away from Judah, and let's go back to uh, the Persians. And so the Persian king, Cambyses, uh, married a Median princess. While she was pregnant, uh, she went to visit her family, her father being the king of the Medes. uh, There he gave birth to Cyrus, who became known as Cyrus the Great. And at his birth, a prophet foretold that Cyrus would capture all of Asia Minor, His grandfather, the Median king, quickly caught the significance of the prophecy. It meant that he would be conquered by his own grandson. And so history writes that he took his grandson, he gave him to a herdsman, and he ordered the herdsman to kill the baby and dispose of the body. It had happened that the herdsman's wife had just delivered a stillborn baby, and the herdsman couldn't bear to kill this baby, so he took him home to his wife. And they adopted Cyrus. Ten years later, all of this came out. It was discovered. And Cyrus was brought before the median royal court. And the king was troubled because he had these prophecies about Cyrus. And how do you go against the prophecy? He had tried and it hadn't worked. And so he consulted all of his magicians. And they convinced him that Cyrus was no threat to him. So he sent Cyrus home to be reunited with his parents the king and queen of Persia. But this left young Cyrus with a burning desire to get revenge over his grandfather because his grandfather tried to kill him. And a few years later, when he became king of Persia, he did exactly that. He flung his entire army at the Median kingdom and he conquered them. And once he had uh, received their surrender, he then showed them no mercy, sparing their towns and cities not destroying them as other conquering nations uh, were wont to do. Normal warfare of the day was you went in with your army, you conquered, the army would rape, destroy, take all the wealth that they could carry home, take slaves, and they'd go home. But Cyrus had a different idea. He was building an empire. And you don't build an empire by destroying the nations that you conquer. And so what Cyrus would do, he would come in, he would conquer, and he would leave everything intact. He left the wealth with the people, he left the leaders in place. They simply just came underneath of his rule, and they now served under him. In fact, many of the nations that he conquered became even more wealthy underneath of his rule. What he didn't do with his grandfather, later as he'd conquer kings, he would leave them in their position. They were just serving under him. History tells us that uh, he actually put his grandfather in prison and left him there. He now had the whole Median infrastructure in place, and he combined the Median army with his own army. And so as you look at what he now has, he was just a little kingdom down here. He now has. And then he took over Elam, and now he has this whole big area. And now he's becoming a threat to the other empires that are around him. Well, that's one version of the event. That's many of the historians, uh, that's how it was recorded back then. And many believe that's how it happened. But there's one other version that does come out, and there is some historical evidence behind it. That rather than go in and uh, conquer Media, he'd actually negotiated an alliance with. By this time, his grandfather was already passed away. The next king had come in. And uh, what they did in the alliance, he became the warlord who led the combined armies of both. And the median king actually did more of the administration. And that makes sense when you read Daniel, where you have Darius is the king over Babylon. Darius was the median king. Darius actually didn't conquer Babylon. It was the combined army under Cyrus that conquered Babylon. And so it was Darius who uh, was ruling Babylon after it was conquered. And it was Darius who threw Daniel into the lion's den. And so that version of history has the two kings uh, co-leading the empire. But when Dryas died, he had left no male heir. He had a daughter, but his daughter had married Cyrus. And so Cyrus simply assumed the leadership as the sole uh, king of the empire. Whichever way it happened, when the, uh, Persians, with the Persians and Medes combined, now Cyrus had a vast empire at his disposal. And so only two empires stood opposed to him. And so you have the Lydians... have this area going off the map, it's the modern-day Turkey, and you have Babylon, that is the major ones that are opposing him. Cretius, the Lydian king, uh, was unlucky, he recognized the danger, uh, but he was too slow to react, Uh, he formed an alliance with Egypt and with Babylon, and so three mighty empires that were going to go against Cyrus. But before they could get their armies together, Cyrus had already attacked Lydia. And uh, the first battle was indecisive. They had a big battle, and uh, the two armies retired. Winter had come, and it was not custom to fight war in winter. They would fight it in the spring through fall, and then they'd go home for the winter. And so Cyrus pretended to go home. The Lydians went back into their homeland, and... uh, he thought the, the others had gone home. Uh, Cyrus simply, once the Lydians had left the battlefield and gone home, he came back around to attack. The Lydians came out with their cavalry to um, fight against him. They were excellent horse warriors, as were the Persians. But Cyrus, knowing that the Lydian horses were not used to camels, he mounted all of his men on camels. And uh, the Lydian uh, horses uh, just spooked, became unmanageable. The Lydians had to jump off their horses to try to defend themselves on foot. And they were simply overwhelmed. Fourteen days later, the walls of the city were breached and the Lydian Empire had had fallen. Cyrus again shows his same mercy. Cretius, the Lydian king, becomes his counselor and actually continues to lead that part of the empire. Uh, He spared the empire from the ravages that come with a conquering army. He simply swallowed their empire up into his own. So he's much richer now and with a much larger army, he now turns his eyes down towards Babylon. The 70 years of Israel's captivity is now coming to an end, as God had foretold. It was time for the Babylons to be destroyed, and it was time for this king to... Cyrus prophesied 150 years before to send Israel back to their land. Cyrus was a tall, handsome guy given to much laughter. He was very popular with his troops and yet he had a temper. Uh, He could fly into a rage. And history records that as he marched towards Babylon, one of his white horses was drowned in a river that they were crossing and he became so angry at the river that he told the river for daring to drown his horse he was going to reduce the river to a little stream that a woman could cross and not get her knees wet so he stopped his march on babylon he marked out 360 channels and he set his men to digging and they kept at it until they had the river diverted into all these channels and flowing in different directions Having defeated the river, Cyrus now marches onward to Babylon. And you go to the book of Daniel, you'll get uh, some of that story there. The Babylons, having been too slow to join the Lydian forces, uh, weren't concerned. Their city was the marvel of the world. No army could ever breach its wall. Even a small army could defend it. And they had ample supplies for a long siege. Now, Babylon had a river flowing underneath the city wall, providing them always with a sure source of water in a siege. Now, armies can come underneath a wall through the river. And so they made a huge iron grate going from inside the wall down deep into the uh, riverbed so that no one could come through. But meanwhile... As the Persians sat outside the wall month after month the Babylon's inside partied. They were feeling that secure. But the Persians are very experienced at digging channels and diverting rivers now. And so far away where the Babylonians couldn't see it the Persians were digging diversion channels. And one night and it was a special festival to one of their gods. King Belshazzar threw a great party for his city, and the entire city partied and was drunk. And the Persians, knowing what would happen on that particular day, had been waiting just for it. And when that night, they diverted the river into all those channels, and the riverbed went dry. And while the Persians partied and were drunk, they sawed through those iron bars and poured into the city. It was taken with virtually no resistance. Cyrus reigned for 10 more years. He never attacked Egypt. And settled, he settled down to enjoy what he had conquered. So he now has that whole part as his kingdom. Not going down to Egypt, not going to Greece. So, a huge kingdom. He continued his mercy to all peoples. He allowed the Jews to return to Israel. He ordered the temple to be rebuilt and he sent the temple utensils home. In 530 BC, uh, he had a raiding tribal group uh, that they went to put down and uh, during the fight he was killed. His son Cambyses came to the throne and reigned until uh, 521 BC, nine years. As far as we can tell, he was murdered, and his uh, brother Smirtis, uh took the throne. Uh, Cambys' his son Darius uh, first, so the other Darius was a Mede. This guy is a Persian. Uh, overthrew Smyrdas and took over the throne. Under Darius, he again was sympathetic to the Jews, and uh, he sent another group of Israelites back uh, to the land of Israel. Darius reigned until uh, his death in uh, 486 BC, about 35 years, and then Darius's son, Xerxes, or some of your Bibles call him Ashuerus, uh, took the throne. That's the Xerxes of the book of Esther. All this time, the Persians have been conquering new lands until it uh, ruled all their known world, pretty much. Uh, by the time Xerxes took the throne, Uh, They now have conquered um, Egypt. Uh, They have conquered parts of Greece, but not all of Greece, only parts of it. It was at the height of its glory. It was a vast empire with riches beyond belief, Uh, the largest empire this world had ever seen up to then. It was into this situation that Esther was born. She and her uncle lived at Susa, the capital of Persia, and it was actually, so down in here, Israel's way over here. It was actually the winter capital uh, for Xerxes. Xerxes came to the throne with some work to do. Uh, By the time he came to the throne, Egypt and Babylon uh, were both in revolt. And so in the first uh, two or three years, he solidifies his support and he puts down the revolts. (coughs) About three years into his reign, he's ready to turn his attention to Greece. And Greece has been a thorn to Persia. They have always wanted to conquer Greece. Never fully been able to do it. They took part of it. Uh, It's been a seesaw back and forth. The Persians would gain some territory. The Greeks would take it back. And uh, it was just going back and forth like that. And so Xerxes comes and he's determined he's going to follow in the steps of his forefathers and be a conqueror. And so he's going to conquer Greece. And so he's going to amass the world's largest army from the world's largest empire, and he's going to crush those rebellious Greeks. And thus we come to Esther chapter 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes, Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords. Try to imagine this. Fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars, there were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man as he wished. Now this was Xerxes' council of war. Today when nations want to display their power, uh, often what they'll do is they (coughs) will do war games or they'll march their army and equipment uh, in parades down the streets. What Xerxes does, he calls together all the world leaders. And for 180 days, they party and they plan this war. At the end of 180 days, he throws one grand final party. So up to now, it's just the world leaders that have been there. Now he throws it open to his entire city. All who wanted to come. And it was a seven-day drunk fest. Everyone was allowed to drink all he wanted. Now you have the palace picture. That's an artist's rendition of what they think it looked like. That palace... Complex covered 123 acres. Huge palace. While he's throwing the party for his men, Vashti, his queen, was holding her own seven day party. Likely they were as drunk as the men were. And it was through this party to the men that uh, he had displayed all his wealth. Think of having so much wealth that if Edmonton was your capital city and you could put a golden goblet into the hands of every person and you could give them all the wine they wanted to drink for seven days. It takes a lot of wealth, doesn't it, to have the, and all the food they can eat and so on. That's what it's about. It's about him displaying himself. But having displayed everything that he has and his power and his wealth... He has one thing he hasn't displayed. Bashti, meaning beautiful woman. Actually, one historian from back then said that there wasn't a woman in the palace that wasn't of exceptional beauty. And so he has one more possession that he wants to d- display the woman that he thinks is the most beautiful in the kingdom. He wants to display her beauty to his fellow partiers. She refused. And an angry Xerxes banishes her from his presence forever. Likely she was sent to the harem, never to see him again. And so he asked his counselors, what do I do? And they created a picture for him of doom. There's this women's liberation movement that is starting. And, you know, if the women take over the country, it's going to destroy us going to destroy the nation. There'll be the loss of power and prestige for husbands. And this threat was enough for Xerxes to depose her from his position. Thus the queenless Xerxes heads off to this war in Greece. And there he suffers defeat after defeat. Now the Greeks, they were fighting for their homeland and they they were fierce warriors. But there was also the supernatural events. He sent this mighty fleet warships and God destroys it in a huge storm, Much, most of it destroyed after a year he returns back uh, things aren't going well His generals fought on for the next several years but finally they lost the war in Greece altogether and it was a decisive moment in history from then on Persia would decline and Greece would rise in power until they took over the known world And the Greeks unified the world like no other empire had done before them or after them. Other empires had united them under a government, but when they're destroyed, their influence fades away. The Greeks united the world for only a few brief years under Alexander the Great. And then it split up into four kingdoms. But the reason why the Greeks' influence continued on was because they didn't just unify the world under a military power. They gave to the world a system of thinking, of philosophy, of education, and of culture. And the Greek culture became the culture of the world. The Greek language became the language of the world, which continued on as the language of education for centuries. And this is why we have the New Testament, mostly was written in Greek. Eventually the Romans would conquer all, but the world had been defined by the Greeks and that influence, in a sense, conquered the culture of Rome in many ways. Because the world had been defined and that influence still continues today. You are greatly influenced by the Greeks in so many ways that you don't even realize because it's part of your culture, become a part of it, of who we are. But what Rome did when they came is they provided a world of law and order for centuries, a world in which the gospel could just spread out. And what God was doing, he was bringing everything together to create a world into which Jesus was born. A world of education, a world of culture, a world of law and order, bringing everything together. It was a perfect time in history for Christ to come and the gospel to go forward. But we need to go back to Esther. When Xerxes came home from Greece defeated, he was still queenless. Not without women, just without a queen. He had a large harem of women, and he considered any woman married or unmarried to be fair game. And we'll look at what that did next week uh, to him. Even his own daughter-in-law, he was sleeping with her. And so playing on his lust and hoping to gain favor, his counselors advised him to add beautiful young virgins from all over the empire to his harem. And now to one of them, choose a new queen. He had lots of women in his harem. He could have chosen one. But they're playing to his lust here. Beautiful young virgins in their culture meant 14 or 15 years old. Thus it was that Esther, a young teenage girl who had the misfortune of being one of the most beautiful girls in the whole empire, was taken into the harem and became the concubine of a middle-aged king who lived for wine and women. She was more privileged than most, and she became queen. Chosen for a task, chosen to save the people of Israel. And within a few short years, Xerxes was dead, and Artaxerxes, his son, took the throne. And we know from history that Artaxerxes elevated his mother, Vashti, back into prominence. The tables would have been reversed. Esther is now the widowed queen deposed by a new queen and a new king and his queen and the queen mother. We don't know what happened to Esther. We're not told that in history. But certainly Vashti would have been, gained the power and prestige of being the queen mother. Esther would have been relegated back into the harem, a section of the palace that was just it was actually a very small place and the, they had hundreds of women. Living in a very small place in that palace. Virtual prisoners. They couldn't leave the palace. They couldn't interact with society, not even their families. A place of bitterness, perhaps, and fighting. Uh, Esther would have been defenseless if Ashley held any animosity towards her. But in that short time that Esther is queen, she accomplished more in a few days than most people do in a lifetime. Through through her, God saved the Israelite nation from being wiped off the face of the earth. Through her, God saved the royal line of David, through whom our Lord Jesus Christ came. And actually, the outcome was never in doubt. The lesson of the story is God is sovereign, and he's in control. Do you see in that whole, we're talking hundreds and hundreds of years, God's hand just moving and controlling (coughs) that whole thing we need to learn the lesson of history god accomplishes his, his will he uses people to do so but the nations come and go one rises up another falls down but that none of that catches god by surprise god is using it to work out his purposes God even knows the names of the kings who will lead, not today's kings only, but the future kings. But also in history, so often it's not the nations and the kings that change the history that God is using. So often it's just simple, ordinary people like Esther, like you. And he uses you to change history. You know, it would have been tough for Esther. A few short years as a queen. But it wasn't a marriage that she would have desired. But God used her in that position so he could accomplish a great thing. She was simply a child. Caught up in the schemes and the evil of this world. And yet God took that child and in his sovereignty chose her to accomplish his purposes. The psalmist thinking about this wrote, he said, the nations conspire and the people plot in vain. They take their stand against God and they think they're in control. And they even say, let's break God's chains, let's throw off God's fetters. And it says, the one in heaven, he laughs, the Lord scoffs at." And he rebukes them. You know, we wonder how our world is going and what's happening, and you know, there's a lot of concern out there. And our world leaders think they're in control. What history teaches us is the Lord laughs at them because He is sovereign. That's the point of history. God owns history, God owns your part in history. And God has the absolute right to use me how he will.